my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings from England, where we are experiencing some very warm and sunny weather. Today, I'm joined by author Lennox Benson, a children's book author. With his experience in the performing and creative arts, Lennox has written his first book titled The Biracial Butterfly. It's an educational tool created to help children learn about mixed heritage and modern families. Hi, Lennox, and welcome. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thank you. How are you? Um, I'm well today. The weather's lovely, and yeah, it's a weekend. I'm in a good mood. <laughs> you have a really great background. <laughs> It just looks very serene and calm. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so how are you today? Yeah, I feel very well. I'm actually very excited for this interview. I think the work that you're doing is really admirable, and I'm just really thankful to be a part of this. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm thankful for this network of people that I'm meeting. Where are you at in the UK? I'm in London. I'm based in West Hampstead live here by myself. It's a nice area. I'm just thankful to be living here. Where's West Hampstead? I've been to London a few times, but I'm not exactly sure of geography. Uh, sure. So it's um, in Northwest London, I think on the tube, it's um, on the Jubilee line, I think zone two on the tube. So it's like quite close to uh, the heartbeat of London, but I'm also somewhat quite close to the suburbs. It's almost kind of in between. Uh, get the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how's your week been so far? I know the weekend is great. Yeah, my week's been good. I was working uh, yesterday. I work in an art gallery. So I work at Camden Art Centre. Thankfully, it's about like a 20 minute walk from where I live. Yeah, I was there yesterday and it was quite quiet in the gallery. I think because of the good weather, um, I think a lot of people are choosing to maybe, I don't know, possibly travel or do other things outdoors. But um, another nice day at work, so just thankful for that. So your accent, of course, you're from the UK. Are you born and raised in London? I was actually born in Lagos, Nigeria. That's actually my home country. I migrated from there to here when I was two years old with my mother. And I've been living here ever since. Have you been back to Nigeria? Um, yeah, I travel back to Nigeria here and there. I haven't actually been back for quite a number of years, actually. But I do intend to go back and see family and family friends and just, you know, reconnect with my heritage. I've heard of also Abuja. Where is Lagos in relation to Abuja? Abuja is the capital, as you know. I'm not quite sure the geography of Lagos in relation to Abuja, but Lagos is another major city in Nigeria. I've always had a fascination with the continent, of course, being Black and from the States, and we don't get enough of the history. But since I've been out of the U.S., I'm always like asking questions when I hear people who are from the continent. <laughs> so I mentioned in the intro that you're a children's writer. How long have you been a writer? The Biracial Butterfly is my first book. And the idea for that came about, I think, like back in 2015 or 16. The idea for these books, because it's a series, it's a trilogy of books, 
And the idea for it actually came about when I was actually in a very dark place in my life, to be honest. I had gone through a traumatic breakdown, which was a culmination of just turbulent teenage years and feeling displaced, feeling confused about my identity. And whilst I was recovering from that breakdown, I was just thinking about what could be a ray of light in this otherwise dark situation. And I thought, you know, I'll reconnect with my childhood dreams and write a children's book series of books. That's where the idea came about. And in 2018, my first book was published and it was received quite well. I'm quite thankful for that. The other two books in the series, um, I wanted to be more queer focused. I was thinking about how myself and other, you know, black queer kids growing up in our formative years, we didn't really see ourselves reflected in children's books. So I thought this would be an opportunity for me to do that. So in the second book, which is actually finished, but it's not going to be published until next year, I think. It's called Bow Blue Parker Pink. And it's basically um, about a girl. She's quite sporty and athletic and her favourite colour is blue. And the boy who's also in the story, he's quite artsy and into fashion and dance and his favourite colour is pink. And the story just follows them through their journey to authenticity, despite being challenged by other people. So that's the second book. The last book in the series, which I'm currently in the process of getting illustrated with the help of an artist, that's about a queer black family of two fathers and their son. The concept for that book is really dear to me because it's something which I feel as if if I had seen as a child, it would have been like a beacon of hope to see myself reflected and to see what I could possibly mm -hmm. have in the future. That book is called The Kings and Prince. And um, I'm not exactly sure when that will be published, but it's currently being illustrated. It's been written, but um, that's kind of like the big daddy of the series. And I'm really excited about that book. And I'm hoping it will be received quite well by the community. Congratulations on pursuing your dreams of being a writer. I came across your post where you mentioned mental health and your personal experiences. And I thought that took a lot of bravery and courage to do that and a lot of strength too, to not only share that, but to share how you're working through that personally and also professionally. Oh, thank you. I just thought it was Mental Health Awareness Month when I posted the video and I thought it was just a good time in my recovery journey to share my story because my first real breakdown happened when I was about, um, I think I was about 19, 20. So I was on the cusp of adulthood. And that was kind of like where things kind of took a downward turn. But I thought now that I'm in my early 30s, I feel as if I've made, you know, some good progress and thankful to, you know, my family, my friends and the NHS. I felt as if I was in a good place in my life to share my story and hopefully inspire other people to share their experiences and also to, um, you know, possibly be inspired by my journey to keep the hope, keep the faith that they can get better. Now, the book, The Biracial Butterfly, is it autobiographical or semi-autobiographical? My heritage is mostly Nigerian. I do have some Ghanaian blood on my father's side and also some European blood on his side too, but most of my heritage is Nigerian. With The Biracial Butterfly, I was noticing how there was a shift occurring in the West, especially where there was a lot more interracial relationships and a lot of multiracial and biracial children being seen around and especially in the media, in commercials and advertisement on the internet and also on television, I thought this is kind of like an interesting shift in society. I thought perhaps, you know, some children may look at this and think, you know, um, they may try to want to make sense of this. And I thought 
I would use it as an opportunity to create something which could help educate children, parents also, who may be trying to teach their kids about modern families and how you know they can just adjust to this shift in society. I think with the biracial butterfly, even though it's not about my own story, I thought I could connect to it personally in some way because I grew up with two cultures, two different cultures, Nigerian culture and also British culture. I thought even though my story is slightly different, I can connect to it in some way. I found a reading of it from a Sankofa Read Aloud on YouTube. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> With the illustrations, it made me think of two stories that I read growing up. One was by James Baldwin. It's a short story called This Morning, This Evening, So Soon. Okay. And then also there's a story called, uh, I think it's called The Almost White Boy. And I can send you the link. It's a short story from around 1963. And it really made me think of that story when I heard her reading of it. Okay. I haven't actually heard of those two um, books before, but I will look into it. You mentioned your second book, Bo Blue and Parker Pink, that's going to be released next year, you said? Yes. So I haven't actually got a specific date for when it will be published. Well, my publisher assured me that it should be published next year. I'm working with a different illustrator from the first one. So the illustrations are a bit more realistic. I've been told that my style of illustrations for the book, that actually would be popular with an American market. <laughs> And I've actually been told by quite a few people that my books would probably be received better in America. Apparently, there's more of a market for books like that in the States. That's something which I'm thinking about because I've always had this idea of how it would be an enriching experience for me to go to the States and live and work out there for a bit. So it's something which is now more so in my mind. Maybe that's why I thought of the illustrations or I brought it up a couple of times because it makes me think of those stories usually young girls read around 13, 14 years old. And also your writing too. And when you talked earlier about creating stories that we can relate to, those are stories for me in particular. Yeah, I definitely would have appreciated those in my, you know, coming of age years. Yeah. I think that, you know, although that's unfortunate that we didn't have such things as, as kids, I think, you know, as adults now, if we can, we can possibly do our bit to enable the next generation to have something to look to for representation. I don't want to use the word pain, but turning adversity into triumph. Yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, who are the illustrators? Because I wasn't sure if you were the illustrator. I didn't illustrate the books. What I've done is um, I've employed illustrators to create the illustrations for me. I give very detailed notes to how I want the illustrations to look like. I send them mood boards. I give them specific details about the outfits, the eye colors, the hairstyles, because um, I had a very specific vision for each of the books. With the first book, it was illustrated by Harry Connor, who's a British artist. She's quite young and she's won a, a couple of awards, I think. And so she did my first book. Ideally, I wanted her to do the next two, but she couldn't do so because she was focusing more on adult projects. So um, I looked for another illustrator and I found her on Facebook and she's called Ashika Sharma and she is based in India. And it's been a real delight working with her. Some of the images that she's created for my second book, I'm a bit um, mesmerized if I can say so myself. <laughs> She's done a really great job in bringing my vision to life. So I'm very thankful to her 
And I just really can't wait to share the book with other people to see how they respond to it. I'm really excited. <laughs> you talked about, you know, this is returning you to a passion of yours from long ago. How old were you when you discovered your gift of writing? I think in primary school, when I was like about eight or nine, I was always a, a bookworm, had my head in books, and that inspired me to do my own writing as a kid. I originally wanted to write a series of books with my mother and have that published. That didn't happen, unfortunately. But um, I thought, you know what, as an adult now, I can tap into that dream somewhat and write books by myself and have them made for a younger audience. I mean, with my books, I think they can be appreciated by mature readers as well. The writing style isn't too simplistic. It's filled with lots of imagery. So I think uh, mature readers can appreciate that as well. I would agree with that because you're dealing with things that even as adults, you know, we're always evolving and learning and growing and, you know, specifically with culture or race or sexual orientation. I'll say from my own personal experiences, I came out, but, you know, there's still a process throughout my lifetime that I'm still going through if I'm open to it. <laughs> yeah. Going off from that, I think that for some mature readers who read my books, I think it could also be, you know, a nice way to possibly have some closure from some childhood trauma. So perhaps if some mature readers went through some troublesome times growing up, dealing with their identity and possibly being bullied, they may read my books and kind of think, okay, I can appreciate this and in some way it can possibly, you know, just heal childhood wounds. And that reminder for me too, that it may not be necessarily my story, but it doesn't mean I can't find something in it. So who were you? Who was Lennox as a child? Oh, Lennox as a child. I think as a tween, I was very, what's the word to use? I think the word is um, effervescent. <laughs> I was very like bubbly, full of energy, eager to please, eager to make new friends. I think my self-expression as a tween was, I would say, pure. As a very young child being surrounded by other young children, I think you kind of like just want to get along with each other for everything to be, you know, moving along smoothly. But I think as I reached my teens, that's when things became problematic. That's when my self-expression was questioned, if not ridiculed. I felt I had to reprogram myself, reprogram my thinking to become more heteronormative in order for me to fit in. So it was a very confusing and troubling time for me because I found myself having to hide my authentic self in order to fit in and just receive less bullying because I went to all boys schools and <laughs> I mean the atmosphere within the school body was very much like toxic masculinity basically if you show signs of weakness as some would say of being a flower boy or being a bit too effeminate then you would get bullied a lot and plus, they were predominantly attended by Caucasian people, by white boys. I was one of the few black boys there. And so I was initially bullied for not just appearing slightly feminine or just not classically masculine, but also because of my race. So those two things became very sensitive topics for me. Whenever there were conversations about such things in the classroom, I would just like fade into the background. I didn't want to be noticed. I think from about like 14 to 16, it was a very troubling time for me. Thankfully, as you know, as I matured and left secondary school, that's when things started to, you know, improve. Flower boy, I've never heard that expression, but I'm assuming that's a English expression. I think I first heard of it in Japanese manga. 
It's like a term for boys who are effeminate, a flower which some would see as being a feminine thing, connected to a boy, thus kind of emasculating him in a way. But flower boy, it has some positive connotations with certain people, but it depends on the person using it, almost like with the N-word in a way, in a way how some people can use it in different ways. As a term of endearment or inclusion. You're the second person that I've heard recently talking about fading into the background in connection to being your authentic self around being LGBT. And for me, kind of like your stories, it's returning me back to those times in my childhood, like how much of me was nature and how much was because of the environment and especially around being male and how we're supposed to present in society. Yeah. So it's food for thought for me. I often hear from other black gay guys and, and bisexual guys as well who have grown up in this country. They tend to say that, you know, in their formative years, they found themselves, you know, having to become invisible in order to receive less harassment. And I think it's really unfortunate because I feel as if as black queer people, we have lots of contribute to society. So having to compromise who we are just for the sake of making a certain group of people feel comfortable, it's really unfortunate. And I'm just hoping that as a community, we can come together and celebrate each other more so that the other generations will never have to go through that again. And we know that we influence society because you see Mm -hmm. it in media, you see it in pop culture. So no one can say that we're not creating a positive impact on society, on art, on culture. You talked about like you started to adjust who you are outwardly around puberty, but it sounds like maybe within the home or within the community, you were able to be more yourself. Yeah, I think that when I was at home with my mother and also my brother, they knew who I was. I came out to my mother when I think I was 18 and my brother, I told even earlier, actually when I came out to my brother, he was actually five years old. (laughs) You know, he just embraced it. He just was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And so I was quite fortunate with that. And also my father was fine with it too. So at home, I felt I could be more authentic. In the wider world, I had to adjust certain parts of myself in order not to be ridiculed or picked on. That was quite challenging, trying to balance my home life, being authentic, and my public life, which was a shell of myself. In sharing about coming out to your brother at that age, just makes me think of how much of homophobia, racism, misogyny, whatever, is coded, and it's not really there. I think a child at that stage is like a sponge, especially within the home. My mother always tried to raise him and myself with open-minded and accepting outlooks. So I think that was also what made it easier for him to embrace me coming out to him as gay. You know, it's dispelling the myth that I still hear in society or even amongst non-Black people around me that Black people, wherever we are in the world, are more homophobic because there seems to be surprise when people find out that many of us, and not to discount those that unfortunately go through trauma around that, but your story dispels the automatic assumption that if we come out to those around us, that we will automatically be ostracized. To be honest, I think everyone knew. (laughs) They were simply waiting for me to just say to them, yeah, okay, this is who I am. It was quite underwhelmed by the reaction because they didn't seem surprised or shocked. I think everyone knew. There were some 
very um, obvious, somewhat stereotypical signs of me, you know, possibly being a certain way. I used to gravitate towards very feminine things. I had lots of female friends and wasn't so much into sports, but liked dancing and the arts. So that was like from as young as about four. My family seeing me being attracted to those things as a young child, I think it kind of made them think that, okay, maybe it's a natural thing. When I was coming out to people, the last close relative was my aunt. And she said around four is when people started to start whispering, like, he seems a little different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The words that I got sometimes were, he seems a bit um, sweet or a bit uh, fruity. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is an expression here, but he's got a little sugar in his gas tank. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard that one too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> You mentioned around the age of 19, if it's okay to touch on this, that was the first time that you had a breakdown. Was that around your sexual orientation? That was part of it. It was a number of things. I think it was just around my identity in general. So race, sexuality. Um, I, I grew up in very um, heteronormative and white neighborhoods and also went to very heteronormative and white schools as well. So um, I think a combination of feeling as if I was, you know, literally the black sheep in my surroundings, it all got a bit too much for me. And I had very few friends around me because I felt as if I couldn't really be authentic with the people around me outside of my home. And how did you work through that? I got a lot of support from my mother. It brought my mother and I a lot closer together. It also got support from other friends who were close to me and also um, the NHS, the care that I got from them, they were very supportive. There was a point when I was on medication and I was receiving therapy. I think a combination of all those things helped me to eventually get back to a stable place. But I do have to say, even in light of all the support that I got from the NHS, my friends and family, a lot of the work, the hard work was down to me. I was the one who really lifted myself out of the mud you utilize those services that were available. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that a lot of the work was because of you, because of your desire to work through what you were going through at the time. You know, there's an expression that I've heard that when there's help there, it's not for those who need it, it's for those who want it. Yeah, so it sounds like you wanted it. Absolutely. Part of that desire to want better for myself was where the idea for the books came about. That was a reflection of um, me just wanting to really turn things around for myself. It was also helpful whilst I was recovering. I was looking at blogs and forums online and just hearing other people's stories and how they're being so open and honest about their mental health and how they recovered. And that's what um, partly inspired me to share my story eventually. So um, I hope I can have the same effect on other people who listen to that video that I have on Instagram about my mental health. I have an expression for myself as I'm owning my story and, and owning your story. That's where I think a lot of times you find your strength. Absolutely. Your story confirms that the stories that we have within our own life are the stories that make movies, they make books, they make all the art that we see. I think it's really inspiring to see like um, this, I think almost like a wave of queer black media that is being released into the mainstream now. It's really inspiring. And I'm hoping that, you know, my books can be a part of that wave of, of media that's inspiring other younger generations to be more authentic and to own their stories. 
and also hopefully to bring about some closure to older black queer people who um, may have some you know wounds from the past that need to be healed and you mentioned you know specifically being black how is it for you as a black queer writer within the industry i think because of my publisher he's made this journey quite seamless for me though i do have to say in terms of the audience for my books i do feel as if it's somewhat limited because some people consider my subject matter for my books to be quite niche I was told that I wouldn't get as much of a positive reception from other writers who may be writing books with white characters, white straight characters. That's been my challenge, being a Black queer writer. It's unfortunate to hear. I completely disagree, of course. But my critique when people say that is, you know, I know me as a Black man, as a gay man, I can find my stories in other people's lives who don't have those type of experiences Mm -hmm. so I don't believe that people cannot relate to our stories yeah I mean I think partly the reason why I found difficulty for my books being well received is because of the country that I'm currently in even though race and sexuality are being discussed more more publicly now it's still very much seen as um very sensitive topics in this country it's kind of like people walk around eggshells whilst talking about it more so white people than black and queer people. But in the States, I've been told repeatedly that, that there's more of an audience for my books. Families in general are a bit more progressive, I think. I'm aware that in the States, there's a lot more black queer people out there. So it would be quite interesting to see how I would, you know, possibly fit into that, how adjust to that being, you know, a British transplant. <laughs> Have you been to the States? Um, when I was about oof, 12, I went to Philadelphia to see my father because he lives out there. He lives between Ghana and the States. And I went to New York when I was about 17, 18 for a school trip. And that was quite an eye-opener. I was really inspired by that trip. I haven't been back since, but I do intend to go eventually. <laughs> So touching a little bit more on race here in the UK, how is it, because I've been asked from other Blacks in the States, how is it here? But I know because I didn't grow up here, because I'm not rooted here permanently, that I can't really answer that question because I'm more informed by my experiences as an American. How is it as a Black British person? What, growing up in school? Yeah. It depends on like the area I went to school for a couple of years in Hackney, which has a a high number of black British people living there. So when I was at school in Hackney as a child, I think that was one of my best school experiences because I was surrounded by a lot of other black kids and I felt very much like I belonged. I didn't feel like I stood out in any way, even though I was still quite, you know, expressive, (laughs) um, exuberant, I guess. I was still kind of... Uh, embraced more, I think, because of my blackness. After leaving that school and moving into the white suburb of Harrow and going to a school in the countryside, like feeling very different because of my race, Um, just being one of the very few black kids going to an all-boys school. I got bullied heavily, I think, from about 15 to 16 or 17. I wasn't completely passive. I did try to, you know, give like these sassy comebacks (laughs) but um, I think uh, it was really hard still regardless I remember there was one point where um, I had to let my mother know about the bullying 
a meeting was arranged with myself, my mother, the boy and his parents to discuss what was going on in terms of the bullying. My takeaway from that experience is to say that, you know, to a kid that if you are being bullied, don't be too proud. Like you can speak to people, like speak to an adult so that you can be supported and the bullies can possibly be, you know, spoken to. And hopefully after that, the bullying would subside because that was a turning point for me. And it confirms for me, too, that we need our community. We need our support, be it from our family, our parents, also from the schools, because I think that should be there from them, too. You know, all children should not have outside forces that influence how they're learning negatively. I think especially if it's from people who you can relate to. Just before my breakdown, I was having this yearning to look for other Black queer people and connect with them. Um, so I remember one day I was Googling gay Nigerians in London <laughs> and um, I discovered one person called Jide, Jide McCauley. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Yeah, I've actually uh, corresponded with him. He's a priest and at the time he was preaching at this gay church. I contacted him and I went to one of his services. You know, we spoke and he took me on as his apprentice or he was my mentor, I guess. And we've been friends till that day and... In those years when I was really struggling with my mental health, he was one of the few people who really supported me and was giving me words of guidance. So I really appreciate him. He's a very dear friend. I'm just very thankful that I was able to at least find him at that point in my life, where I really was at a crossroads and I felt like I needed someone to, or just people who looked like me and who I could relate to. Yeah, that's great to hear that that support is coming from the faith-based community. You know, a community that is stained a lot of times with homophobia. I grew up in a Christian household and most of the people in the Sunday school, they pretty much knew I was, you know, who I was. On the most part, they were so fine with me. But I remember there was this one day in a Sunday school service where the Sunday school teacher said to us that homosexuals are immoral and if I ever see any of you on television or in the media talking about gay issues, that I'll be very disappointed in you. And I'm doing that very thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the power back, owning my story. Owning your story, yeah. <laughs> in relation to your career as a writer, especially you know writing for children, I think it takes a lot of courage as an out gay writer that's your target audience, especially that negative stereotype that specifically gay men or men who are attracted to men that we prey on children, which we know is not true. So I think it takes a lot of courage for you to focus on that demographic. I was very aware of that um, negative stereotype when I was writing these books. Funnily enough, it actually encouraged me to write these books as a way for me to kind of smash that stereotype and to challenge people's perception of gay men being predatory. So I thought it was really important for me to write these books at this time where I feel as if I can, you know, just really be representative of a gay man who has good intentions and just simply wants to inspire other kids to be more authentic. Yeah, I have a friend in Sweden because that's where I've spent most of my time here in Europe and he works with children and we've had those talks about, you know, his own internal process of, saying, I know that that stereotype may be out there, but I'm not going to allow that to diminish what I want to do. So as an out gay person, when you came out, did you find your tribe or your community 
as far as being both black and gay? Um, oh, when I fully came out, I think I was about 18, 19, around the time that I met um, Chide. And I think through him, he introduced me to a lot of other black queer people. So he was kind of like the one who really kind of opened my eyes and made me aware of a black queer community in London. And through him, I met a lot of other fabulous black gay men. I'm still in contact with some of them till this day. It's kind of like a domino effect, like one person introduces you to someone and then they introduce you to someone else and you just start to acquire all these people as friends and expand your network. So it's great to hear. Yeah, I'm just very humbled by my experience when I hear other people's experiences, especially back home in Nigeria. Now, with your both Nigerian and Ghanaian heritage, is it possible to be yourself in relation to being gay in those countries? From my knowledge, um, it depends on your uh, socioeconomic status. I think if you're from a certain type of family, let's say like a, a well-to-do middle-class family in Nigeria, and you run in those circles, um, I think you can live somewhat of an authentic gay life behind closed doors. You can meet up with friends who are also queer and black and you can also have relationships, but you can't actually be fully out. From my understanding, you have to kind of be living authentically somewhat in the closet, if that makes sense. I think this is kind of understanding that, you know, as long as you do it in private and you don't put it in my face, then I'm somewhat okay with that. This is what I've heard from other people living in Nigeria and in Ghana and how they, you know, navigate as a queer person. So now as a Nigerian, what makes the country unique? What makes Nigeria, Nigeria, as far as culture, as far as language, food? Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) From my understanding, I just think we're very like unapologetic and bold. We don't pretend to be something that we're not. We simply embrace, you know, flaws and all and just live life to the fullest. I know a lot of Nigerian people who have lived in London for a few years and then they go back to Nigeria and they tell me stories of how, you know, they feel as if living in Nigeria they don't have to be a ghost of themselves. They can be their authentic selves. Um, they feel as if living in London or in any Western country, they have to, you know, be a somewhat, uh, what's the word to use? They have to be a modified version of themselves, if that makes sense. That's where I think that the contrast lies between living in Nigeria and living in somewhere like London. Sounds like maybe that's where you got your examples of being your authentic self. Somewhat, because I mean, in Nigeria, I can't necessarily be my authentic self in terms of my sexuality, but in terms of like the other parts of who I am, my philosophy, I can do that definitely back home. My dad's family is from New York and New Yorkers are known for being very upfront. I won't say it's jarring, but it's different, especially my mother's side is much more repressed and subdued. It's, it's jarring, but it's attractive because it's the truth and it's honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in London, I think we tend to like be too polite. <laughs> um, but I think in recent times, um, you see a lot of Black queer people, for example, who are being more outspoken and raw about what it is to be a Black queer person in this country. People such as Monroe Bergdorf. She's a trans activist, a black trans activist. Oh, I have to look her up to make sure I connected the name with the face. 
There was a controversy with her about the statement she made when she was doing an endorsement deal with L'Oreal about how all white people are racist. And she used that as a way to make a name for herself. And she's doing really well now. So she's one person who really kind of started the conversations about race and sexuality, making them more, more mainstream within the Black queer circle in London. I love hearing that. It's a good example for me, even connected to this platform, because I know I've been asked, I don't like to use the word niche, but why would we need something this specific for our community? And not just me, but like what you're doing and what other people are doing. I think it's because in mainstream media, there's an assumption that LGBT means that we're all represented equally. And I know from my own experience, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't within the LGBTQ plus community addressed the racism that exists there. Yeah, I tend to kind of like stay within my bubble because sometimes the racism and the homophobia could be very overwhelming. But when I do see racism and homophobia happening, I do try to call the people out because I think to be silent is, is a way of letting these atrocities just continue. Sometimes you do have to speak out. That's what I try to do when I feel comfortable and safe. And I think it goes back to mental health with the Black Lives Matter movement and what's been made more public in the last year or so. What I'm learning for myself is that we are me. I have to acknowledge that racism and homophobia too, but more racism, it's emotionally and psychologically scarring. Absolutely. And we focus more on the overt stuff, but the daily microaggressions or whatever you want to call it that's Mm -hmm. what i'm processing on a daily basis or trying not to allow to damage me long term yeah i'm similar to i do experience microaggressions here and there i'm trying to manage them in a way that's level-headed as opposed to just simply kicking off (laughs) i'm still learning as yourself So uh, I know you're a writer and you mentioned that you work for an art gallery. Do you have any other creative or professional outlets? At the moment, I'm in the process of creating an EP, so an album uh, for songs. It's always been a childhood dream of mine to make music. Um, Initially, as a teenager, I wanted to be a recording artist. Man in my 30s now, I'm trying to uh, just, you know, fulfill that dream to an extent by creating some music now. So I'm currently working with a producer and a couple of songwriters to create um, an EP. I'm not sure when it will be ready, but the process has been started now. So I'm really excited about it because it's been a long time coming. Congratulations. I look forward to hearing that. And you said it hasn't happened. My first thought was yet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I think you touched on, too, that there seems to be a resurgence within the community of we have more power than we realize. So your projects, which include the music, confirm that. I would love to um, use my music as a way to be representative of the Black queer community. I would love to one day create a music video and use a Black queer model as a love interest in the video to be an example of, you know, Black queer love and how it exists and how it can be celebrated. That'd be great to see. Uh, I thought of Marsha Ambrosia, the singer. Was she a part of Floetry at one point? Floetry, yeah. And she had a video where she featured a gay male. I mean, I don't want to give it away uh, if you haven't seen the video, but it made me think of that. All right, I'll check it out. 
Yeah, yeah, because I need to see those those images still. Yeah. Well, I don't have any more to ask you, but do you have anything you'd like to share that I haven't asked? It's not necessarily about me, but I was just wondering about your podcast. I was just wondering where you intend to take it from here. Do you intend to like interview people based in places such as, you know, Africa or the West Indies? I would love that. I've interviewed one person so far from uh, Malawi. And he lives in South Africa, uh, Victor Chikalogwe. I can imagine that his experiences are very different to people who are living in the States or the UK. Different, but what I'm learning so far is there's still some similarities. And then for me as a Black American, because we are Black, but we are not connected in the way that you are to the continent, because a lot of that history was lost a long time ago. Yeah, And so in hearing these stories I've heard so far, it's like, oh, okay, there's parts of the culture, the Black American culture that I'm starting to realize are more uniquely African than I realized in some of the customs and the way the family dynamics are. I'm noticing like how now back home in Nigeria and within Africa in general, and I think the Caribbean too, how Black queer issues are being discussed now as opposed to being swept under the rug. Whilst they're being discussed now, it's still very much, most of the time, from what I hear, within mostly a negative light. But I think the fact that it's being discussed at all is like the start to eventually one day tolerance and then possibly acceptance. I think it's better to kind of like address these issues as opposed to pretending they don't exist. So I think it's just like one small step towards possible tolerance in the future. And I think your stories and your platform as a writer can help that. But you asked, like, where would I like this to go? It's still new for me. It was an idea that came out of me being here in Europe. And I knew about the UK having the largest concentration of Blacks. But at the time, I was in Sweden. And I'm like, I see Black people wherever I've gone. But why am I not more aware of our voices? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hopeful that this platform can help with that. So it's new. I'm still learning. Um, The technical part of it, the interviewing even, is returning me back to when I was a journalism major, uh, when I moved to LA to be an actor. The business part of it is new, and that's where I'm needing to push more and to ask for guidance. That's where I'm at now. I'm excited to see how this blossoms. You talked about America and yeah, it's bigger. It's um, the voices are louder. There's platforms for us to be heard more, but we're still, in my opinion, very much an island in that we don't know as much as we could know about our people outside of our country. So yeah, again, thank you so much. And I very much look forward to uh, seeing your journey on social media and look forward to your next book too. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.